Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. Coming up this hour, with more than 1,000 vacant buildings in D.C., why isn't the city cracking down on the people who own them? There's rats, growing bugs, all kinds of stuff back there. So I wish somebody would do something. But first, we'll head underground to a spot we at WAMU 88.5 know quite well, given our studio's location on Connecticut Avenue. It's the Van Ness UDC Metro Station. On an average weekday, 6,400 riders bustle on and off the red line at Van Ness. And today, two of those riders include myself. Well, let's start up here. Um, Tell us who you are. And this guy. I'm Andy Baldwin. I'm a professor in the Department of Environmental Science and Technology at the University of Maryland. I invited Baldwin to meet me near the turnstiles, just above the metro platform, to talk botany. Now, you may be asking, Rebecca, what in the world could botany have to do with a dark concrete tunnel 100-plus feet underground? Well, I'm glad you asked. As we stand here, what are we looking down at on the far side of the tracks? Well, we're just at this short escalator up above the uh, tracks, and we're looking down into the grates along the side of the wall where the fluorescent tubes are in the metro tunnel, and we can see a number of small green plants. That's right, plants. You might have noticed them yourself. They're tiny green leaflets peeking out above the grates. And not just here at Van Ness, but at other stops along the red line, including Tenleytown, Cleveland Park, and Woodley Park. Baldwin says he hasn't 100% confirmed it. I haven't been able to get close enough to identify them with a microscope. But these plants appear to be ferns. Venus maidenhair ferns. Or as they're known in more scientific circles. Adiantum. Capillus veneris. With veneris being Latin for beauty or grace and attractiveness. Capillus being Latin for hair. And the name adiantum is what the ancient Greeks used to call this type of fern. Adiantum means without moisture because the leaves of these ferns stay dry even though water is dripping on them. The water is just shed right off the leaves. Now, that water is key. Because while Venus maidenhair ferns don't require much light, they sure do love damp. In fact, Andy Baldwin says they naturally grow on vertical limestone rock faces where water is continuously present. Along the spray of a waterfall, for example, behind waterfalls. And the metro tunnel walls basically fit that bill. But, says WAMU transportation reporter Martin DeCaro, the appearance of the ferns underground might suggest a problem. It is great to see ferns, maybe, if you're underground, but the source of the ferns is a problem for Metro. In other words, water. Water in the Metro system can damage things, such as third rail cables. Electrical components. And as we all know, water is among the most damaging things in the universe, right? Just all that erosion. In fact, erosion's gotten so bad along certain parts of the red line in Montgomery County that as early as next year, the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority plans on shutting certain stations on consecutive weekends. 14 consecutive weekends to deal with the water infiltration on that stretch of the red line. Now, as for those electrical components and how water can be detrimental there, remember what happened on the yellow line in January? when heavy smoke engulfed a train near L'Enfant Plaza, leaving one passenger dead and sickening at least 86 others? Well, during the National Transportation Safety Board's hearings about the incident, water came up as a potential culprit. Photographs from underground were shown of the area where the electrical malfunction took place and where the smoke originated. And you could see there was water damage, water infiltration, and 
according to Metro's own records, that had been an area of past water problems. And actually, at the hearings, WMATA's Clay Bunting, who supervises Trek and structures, admitted just how widespread these kinds of water problems are. There are approximately, any, at any given time, between three to 5,000 water leaks within the system. But, he adds, Metro's trying to stay on top of it. Our leak inspections, uh, essentially, are continuous. And anybody that's, that has a, a, a basement understands the difficulty of trying to chase water, and we, and we do. That is, we are firefighting when it comes to water control. The thing is, though, a certain amount of water in the metro system is normal. Our system was made to allow water to drain to it. And so we focus a lot of our efforts in keeping our drainage system open, our drain channels on the track bed open. So they can collect water and discharge it from the system. We discharge approximately 2 million gallons of water a day. In other words? About three Olympic-sized swimming pools. So now it's a little less mysterious as to how those Venus maidenhair ferns can thrive in the metro system. As for how they got here, well, Andy Baldwin says that's a bit of a quandary. These plants have actually not been reported in D.C., according to the USDA plants database. In fact, they're not supposed to exist north of southeastern Virginia. But since they reproduce through tiny spores... And these spores are very small. They're about the thickness of a human hair or a fleck of dust. The spores can blow thousands of miles through the air. And if they stumble upon a favorable environment for growth, they'll latch on and stick around. And as Baldwin points out, that favorable environment needn't always be natural for better or for worse. In urban areas, we've actually altered the conditions a lot. And so not only these ferns, but think about pigeons or raccoons or invasive fish, or I study wetland plants. So there's this giant reed or common reed, Phragmites, which is dominating in many areas. We've really created habitat for many of these species that would otherwise occur at a low abundance. Including right here deep down in the dank, dark tunnels of one of the busiest rapid transit systems in the country. If you haven't seen the ferns yourself, we have the next best thing. You can find photos of Venus maidenhairs along the metro tracks on our website, metroconnection.org. I have a little plant. I always give her water. Because you see, she really loves her water. And she says, thank you to me. Even though I never hear it, but she says, thank you to me. We'll stay in the world of botany for our next story. Well, botany and theater. Lauren Landau has more. Last year, when the Kennedy Center premiered a musical about Degas' Little Dancer, the National Gallery of Art backed it up with an exhibit. It was unique, but made sense. The visual and performing arts go together. But a play inspired by plants... Okay, so it's not unheard of, but still, the Kennedy Center's latest partner is an unexpected choice. This month, the nationally recognized venue is co-presenting a pair of world premiere plays at the U.S. Botanic Garden. Typical programs at the Botanic Garden are very hands-on plant science oriented. That's Ari Novi, the garden's executive director. So we'll bring in students, usually you know, from a school group who are with a science class or something like that, and we'll do a module with them where they learn how to plant seeds, they learn how plants grow, something kind of um, semi-didactic and science-related. Like many institutions, the Botanic Garden looks for innovative ways to attract new visitors. 
The team decided to give theater a try and reached out to the Kennedy Center. People coming in and just being engaged in the, in the magic of theater, but through that kind of stealth teaching a little bit about the plant world and about what the Botanic Garden has to offer. It's like sneaking vegetables into your kid's pasta sauce. On a Friday afternoon, tiny school children are squirming around on the marble seats of the Botanic Garden's outdoor amphitheater. Flower Stink opens with a middle schooler named Acacia, who would rather tweet than work on her English assignment, to write a poem about nature. Hashtag poetry is lame. Hashtag nature is boring. Hashtag flowers stink. Suddenly, two magical plant beings appear and try to teach her why plants are totally worth tweeting about. Dressed in faux petals, leaves, and bark, the two instrument strumming singing plant beings implore Acacia to look closely at a seed. You and this seed have a lot in common. Who knows what's inside of you and, and what you could grow into if you just give yourself a chance. Everything on earth started out as nothing The idea of the piece, the tiniest seed and the little girl becoming everything that she can be, you know, that was sort of a, a metaphor we wanted to have run through the entire show. That's Stephen McWilliams. He and Deborah Bonacorsi wrote the music and libretto for Flowers Stink. It's their first foray into writing for young audiences and into the world of plants. Oh, we've done so much research. We don't have a botanical background. Audiences learn about biodiversity as the trio of actors talk and sing about the desert, the tropics, and the rainforest. The big green umbrella underneath the big green umbrella. What I really hope is that they're going through that desert exhibit singing cool for a cactus or that, you know, big green umbrella when they're in the tropic exhibit that it it connects on more than just one level of like, I'm learning about science. It's like also, I learned a song today. In a world inundated with technology, these playwrights are trying to teach kids to appreciate the things that don't come in a box. Put your iPad and your iPhone down and actually try to experience the world a little bit and um, it'll make you better. Yeah, and then the beauty of words, also the beauty of poetry and, and how it all relates. I just think we don't want to lose that. Flower Stink delves into the dangers of deforestation and a changing climate. You know, you need to impart that message to kids because they have to start young. They have to really realize that that this can all be gone very fast. Like, we were walking through here the other day going, wouldn't it be interesting if this was underwater in a hundred years and we were visiting as a scuba diving place. And he says music can stick with people, leaving a message that continues to sink in long after the song ends. Like, suppose you heard Bob Dylan back in the 60s and you thought about what they were saying, or Woody Guthrie back in the 30s, and you, you thought about what they were saying and you left going, man, I love this music, but I'm also listening to these lyrics and I'm saying, hmm, maybe I need to think about this. He says by engaging audiences and planting these concepts, theater can do the same thing. I'm Lauren Landau. Flowers Stink runs through October 24th at the U.S. Botanic Garden. Cerulean Time Capsule, the other world premiere co-presented by the Botanic Garden and the Kennedy Center, runs through October 25th. Both plays are free. You can find more information on our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back... 
Uh, we've lived here about five and a half, six years. And how long has the property next door been vacant? It's been vacant since before we moved in. Vacant houses in D.C., even as real estate values rise. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. Coming up, remembering women who served during World War One. Why aren't their contributions more highly recognized? We had women die during their service. But first, these days you can find more than 1,100 vacant buildings in Washington, D.C. We're talking houses with overgrown lawns, apartments with boarded up windows. Many are in the district's poorer neighborhoods, but hundreds stand in neighborhoods where property values are through the roof. So why don't the owners do something? And why doesn't the city crack down on them? Matthew Schwartz went out in search of answers. Hello. D.C. is a city of tours, Segway tours, ghost tours. But this is the first vacant property tour I've ever been on. It's not as fun. There's roughly a vacant building on every block. Our community has a lot of wounds. David Schoen was elected to the Advisory Neighborhood Commission in this section of North Petworth last year, and he's waging a campaign against vacant houses. We're coming up to one now, near the corner of 9th and Gallatin Northwest. The front doesn't look so bad, but the backyard is a trash heap. There's there's a truck, and uh, it looks like it's been sitting there for a while. There's... Uh, a mattress, there is a very rusted out Safeway shopping cart, there is garbage, old pizza boxes, water bottles, uh, I think that's a beer bottle. I mean, who knows what else is is hidden underneath all these weeds. The neighbors can't just come and mow this? Not legally. It's private property. The neighbor in this case is Leon Sims Jr., and he doesn't know what to do. That backyard, man, that... There's rats, rodents, bugs, all kinds of stuff back there. So I wish somebody would do something. Shone is trying to do something. He says vacant properties lead to increased crime and safe havens for drug deals. He's gotten into heated arguments with developers, letting them know that neighbors have complained and threatening to call the city. A row house in the 900 block of Farragut looks out of place. It's in disrepair. The wood is rotting and cracked steps lead up to an empty porch. The inside is devoid of furniture. There's a sticker on the front here. It says construction exempt fiscal year 2015. What does that mean? That means it's exempt because it's got a building permit on it. Exempt from what? Exempt from a vacant building tax. Exempt from the city's main tool to crack down on vacant properties. Normal residential property tax in DC is 85 cents per $100. The vacant property tax is nearly six times as much. It's real money, and it's meant as motivation for developers to bring a vacant house back to life. If you pull a construction permit, the city will lift the tax since you're working on the house, but it turns out there's a loophole. Jason Weaver lives next door to the empty row house. And and how long have you lived here? Uh, We've lived here about uh, five and a half, six years. And uh, how long has the property next door been vacant? It's been vacant since before we moved in. In the five and a half years you've lived here, how much building and construction has gone on in this house? Very little. The current owner, he's I've seen him show up very infrequently, and I've seen him do very little. 
A developer can pull a construction permit, avoid the vacant tax, and not do any work. He can renew the permit for years. That action of putting in a uh, building permit, which I think in his case he paid about $1,500 for the building permit, uh, saved him about $15,000 in taxes. I left messages for the owner but didn't hear back. Why would a developer hold on to a property? Shown has a theory. The owners are incentivized to sit on the properties because property values in Petworth are going up, and the longer that a, a developer sits on the property uh, and leaves it vacant, the more money they're going to make down the road. But some developers argue that the loophole is actually a good thing for the city. Good to see you. No problem. I drove to the Upper Marlboro home of Charles Martin, who has been active in D.C. real estate for over a decade, including transactions in Schoen's neighborhood. Sir Charles Martin, managing member, Prosperity Park Properties. I'm very curious about this, sir. <laughs> when, when were you knighted? Self-knighted. There are a lot of Charles Martins in the real estate business, uh-huh. and I edit the sir to distinguish me from the others. Can you do that? I did it. (laughs) In 2002, Realtor Magazine honored Martin as one of 30 under 30. He says he's done more than $100 million worth of transactions in and around the district, and he passionately defends the practice of buying a property and holding on to it until surrounding property values rise. The city should welcome long-term investors. It may be bad for the neighborhood because their property may not be getting turned around as fast as the neighborhood would like to see it. But, you know, the purpose of capital is to generate the highest possible return. And that so-called loophole, letting a developer avoid the tax? It's the law in the district. Now, if the city council wants to do something about it, the city council can change the law. In fact, the D.C. Council is considering some changes to the vacant property rules. ANC Commissioner David Schoen has provided them with 10 action items to fix the problems he sees. Number three on his list? We've got to get rid of this building permit loophole. The city would make more money and these houses would turn over much faster. At-large council member Alyssa Silverman isn't especially concerned with the lost revenue because bringing in more money was never really the point. The vacant property tax, she says, was really just about motivating developers to get to work. That said... David makes a good point, which is we want to make sure that we guard against bad actors, people who really have no intention of putting that property back on the market, but who, you know, take out a building permit simply to stop the clock. Silverman has reviewed Schoen's 10-point plan and is working with the head of the Department of Consumer and Regulatory Affairs, which handles vacant properties, to make some of Schoen's ideas a reality. One of the proposals that we were very interested in Uh, which will also help us uh, guard against the bad actors, is his second proposal in his list, which is to put the shift the burden of proving a, a property is vacant. We think that makes a ton of sense. Silverman plans to send language to the council this fall, requiring homeowners to prove a property is no longer vacant, rather than the current rules which require city workers to prove that it is. As for eliminating the construction exemption, Silverman says DCRA isn't too keen on the idea, because the exemption works really well to get the good actors moving. For his part, Sir Charles Martin bristles at the idea that developers who sit on building permits are bad actors taking advantage of a poorly drafted law. If you were on the city council, would you change that law? No, I wouldn't, because I respect capital. Look, capital changes neighborhoods, and you can't regulate capital to drive it away. If you say, okay, we're going to be, we're, we're going to disrespect your capital. We're going to tell you what you can do with your money, 
Guess what? People are going to go, go to other neighborhoods. So the district has to make a decision. Do we want capital pouring into the city or do we want to drive capital away from the city? It might take a while, Sir Charles says, but in the long term, that capital could reduce vacant homes and someday make neighborhoods more beautiful. But that's a little comfort for people like Leon Sims Jr., who lives next to the backyard trash heap on 9th, next to a house that often serves as an illicit neighborhood hangout. Every evening is a party in the vacant house with the men that just socialize on the block. Don't even live on the block, and we don't want no problems with them speaking out against them, because you don't know what how people are. You don't know what they'll do. So we just in a situation where we don't know what to do about it. ANC Commissioner David Schoen hopes he can do something about it, one door at a time. I'm Matthew Schwartz. If you want to go on your own vacant house tour, you can see photos of some of the properties Matthew visited on our website, metroconnection.org. It's been a week of celebration for this year's winners of the MacArthur Foundation Genius Awards. Last week, the foundation announced its annual list of individuals who've made significant contributions in the arts, sciences, and humanities. The award comes with a no-strings-attached grant of $625,000. This year's geniuses include an economist, a neuroscientist, a puppeteer, and two people with ties to our region, ta Coates and Gary Cohen. Coates is a Baltimore native who attended Howard and got his start as a writer at the Washington City Paper. Cohen is founder of the Reston, Virginia-based nonprofit Healthcare Without Harm. It's a global organization dedicated to improving environmental stewardship in the healthcare sector. The day after Cohen received the big news, Lauren Ober spoke with him about medical waste, climate change, and a hospital's responsibility to the health of its community. I'm wondering if, for you, this is like a big light shining on the work that you've been doing for years. Yeah, the MacArthur Award is a profound recognition of the work not only I've been doing, but the work that's been happening all around the world to help heal the healthcare sector's pollution and to have them become advocates for environmental health and sustainability around the world. You know, when we started uh, the organization in 1996, there was very little understanding of the environmental footprint of healthcare, and yet it's an enormous part of our economy in this country and uh, 10% globally. But because of its healing mission, it has the power to be transformative, not only for its own operations and supply chain and energy use, but for the economy as a whole. So how did this area of medical waste and environmental issues relating to healthcare get on your radar to begin with? I had been involved in work around contaminated communities for about a decade. And then in the mid-90s, there was a lot of research that was showing that endocrine-disrupting chemicals, low doses of toxic chemicals, were very dangerous for the developing child. And two of those chemicals were dioxin and mercury. And at the very same time, the EPA was reporting that medical waste incineration was the largest source of dioxin emissions in the United States and a significant source of mercury contamination. So the idea that 
hospitals were poisoning people in service of healing them was crazy. In the 20 years that you've been doing this work, where have you seen the biggest changes and the most progress? Well, when we started the organization, there were over 5,000 incinerators in the country burning medical waste, and now there's less than 70. When we started the organization, mercury was the gold standard for blood pressure devices and thermometers, and now there is no market for mercury measuring devices, and there's been a global treaty signed phasing out all mercury measuring devices by the year 2020. But I think there's a much broader healing mission that the healthcare sector can play, which is to heal the communities and to heal the planet. And so they can play a powerful role in changing the food they buy to support sustainable agriculture. They can be early adopters of renewable energy and pull the rest of the economy toward that low-carbon future. They can detox their supply chain, get rid of toxic chemicals, and be early innovators for green chemistry and safer products, all in service of their mission to heal. I wonder how you've been able to send out the message that actually this is part of your responsibility as healthcare providers to be concerned with the environmental health of people as well as medical health. The healthcare sector is the one sector of our economy that has an ethical framework that lives by the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. And so bringing these environmental challenges to the sector created a sense of responsibility for them to clean up their own house. In the 20 years or so that Healthcare Without Harm has been in existence, how has the the organization grown? I mean, it, it's global in it, its scope. How did you get there? The way that Healthcare Without Harm has grown has been by the power of the idea. There's a way in which this environmental message resonates deeply with people in healthcare. They got into this work because they wanted to be about healing. And so they're expanding the mission of what healthcare's job is in the 21st century, which is not just healing individual patients, but healing communities and healing the planet. So you've done great work around dioxin and mercury, like you mentioned. I'm wondering what is currently on your wish list for healthcare entities to address now? There's enormous opportunity now to have the healthcare sector rebrand climate change as a medical emergency and addressing climate change as the greatest public health opportunity of the 21st century. I think what we're doing is revisioning what the role of healthcare is. In this country, we've built cathedrals of chronic disease, and what we need hospitals and clinics to be is to be anchors for community wellness and sustainability. That was MacArthur Genius winner Gary Cohen speaking with Lauren Ober. And now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. This week on Door to Door, we'll visit Vienna, Virginia and Greenbelt, Maryland. My name is Susan Stillman. I live in Vienna, Virginia, which is close to Tyson's Corner, and I've lived here for 27 years. The new Silver Line Metro Station has a couple of stops in Tyson's Corner, and we're just south of that. The name of Vienna is not clear where it came from. Originally, it was called Air Hill. 
um, named by a Scotsman that settled early on in the town. And the story, which has not been legitimized one way or the other, is that a doctor came to town and he asked that the town change its name to Vienna, which is where he was from in New York. Vienna has a very nice, real, uh, small town feel and a very strong sense of history. We're going through a growth spurt now. It was largely homes built for government workers that commuted into the city, and the homes were small. We have about 100 new homes being built each year, older homes being taken down and new houses being built. And so that's the real change that we're seeing. It's a very walkable community. Um, I can go anywhere in town, get my grocery shopping done, go out to restaurants. I'm very happy here. It feels to me like the right mix of sort of an urban feel and a suburban feel. My name is Steve Skolnick and I live in historic Greenbelt, Maryland and I've lived here for 36 years. Greenbelt is situated just northeast of Washington, D.C., just at the junction of the Capitol Beltway and the Baltimore-Washington Parkway. The original homes were built between 1937 and 1943, I believe is correct, and that is the era. It's definitely has a very retro feel to it. It's tremendously walkable, and that's by design. I find that there are many days when we don't even get in the car, that we walk or bicycle um, around town, so that we really don't have to commute at all to have a full life here. One of my favorite things about Greenbelt is that it is so unique. This is a housing cooperative, so our homes are all commonly owned, and we self-govern the 1,600 homes, and it gives the opportunity for true grassroots self-governance. It's a representative democracy in a very meaningful way that touches our lives daily. We heard from Steve Skolnick in Greenbelt and Susan Stillman in Vienna. They spoke with John Hines and Karen Turner. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can tell us about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. The Forgotten Stories of American Women Who Contributed During the Great War. You see these ingrained attitudes about what women could do, and then their responses about, you know, I have to find another way to serve, or do I just give up? It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. A little under a century ago, with the world at war, General John Joseph Pershing made this appeal to his fellow Americans from the battlefield in France. 3,000 miles from home, an American army is fighting for you. Invoking the spirit of our forefathers, the army asks your unflinching support to the end that the high ideals for which America stands may endure upon the earth. Pershing was speaking shortly after the United States entered what would become known as World War I. 
But here's the thing. Four years later, as Pershing looked back at the war, he was quoted in 1922 in the Washington Post as saying, no matter how patriotic or brave were the men or how self-sacrificing, the women always went them one better. And Alexandria-based author and editor Elizabeth Foxwell thinks not nearly enough people know that. Probably the most high profile that you hear the most about is that they were nurses. A huge amount of women served as nurses. But it's larger than that. So she's put together an anthology spotlighting the service of women in World War I. It's called In Their Own Words and uses actual letters, journal entries, and articles from the time to illustrate the many roles women played. When I met Foxwell at the D.C. War Memorial, the humble open-air dome honoring the 499 citizens of Washington who gave their lives in the Great War. It's the only D.C.-oriented memorial on the mall. She pointed out that women also served as relief workers, canteen workers, singers, pianists, even doctors, who tried to serve with the army, but they were prevented from uh, joining up because they were women. Uh, So they offered their services to France, who was glad to have them, and Serbia, because they could take care of Muslim women. Engraved on the D.C. War Memorial are the names of six women. But Barbara Bates of the Association of the Oldest Inhabitants of D.C. has found three more. Those three died uh, abroad during their service, I believe in France. A handful of the women in Foxwell's book were local to the D.C. area. I asked her to tell me about some of them, starting with Gertrude Thibault, whom we meet via an article she published in the October 1918 issue of Library A Current. As Foxwell explains, Thibault entered the American Library Association's War Library Service in 1918 and worked at Walter Reed. The account gives a sense of what the role of librarians were and also what the wounded were facing. But a book became so important in therapy, let's say, or, you know, I'm going to be getting out of the service soon. What am I going to do? So I have to plan for my future. And I think it's something we don't think about, what role librarians really can play in uh, adjustment, readjustment to civilian life and dealing with the wounds of war. Also, it seems like librarians sort of became these unofficial confidants. She talks about beyond checking out books for the men, those more personal bonds she formed with them. Yes, that's true that the uh, men felt that they could trust librarians and they saw them, you know, every day. They did forge these bonds with the men and tried to find, you know, appropriate or what they felt was appropriate things to read. I know that one fellow was, I think, suffering from some mental health issues and he wanted a certain book that they felt would sort of excite him more. And so they said, you know, maybe this poetry book would be better for you, you know. So um, you really see the efforts to really truly serve the servicemen who were wounded. Another woman of local interest has a fascinating connection to one of D.C.'s top tourist attractions come spring. She was a travel writer. She was a clerk in the paymaster general's office. Her name was Eliza Skidmore. Tell us her story. Her uh, brother was a consul to Japan, so she often traveled with him. And so she was actually on the spot when Japan declared war against Germany. And so her account in the book discusses 
the uh, declaration of war and what happened afterward. And it's a fascinating slice of the war that we don't really hear about. We think the war is just France. Well, it's not just France. It's various theaters. It's Italy. It's Japan and uh, Germany. And also there's some, you know, sort of China mixed up in there. And her connection with the cherry blossoms? Oh, yes. Um, unfortunately, Helen Taft, the first lady, is often given the majority of the credit about the cherry blossoms at the Tidal Basin. And this isn't necessarily true. Apparently, Eliza Skidmore saw cherry trees in Japan, thought they were beautiful. And so she felt that they would make a fine addition to Washington and tried to deal with various D.C. departments and was blown off essentially several times. And so she wrote to Helen Taft and Helen Taft liked the idea and ran with it. So Eliza Skidmore is really the one who should be credited with the cherry trees at the Tidal Basin. You mentioned in the book that women's involvement in the war met a fair share of, of criticism. What kinds of criticisms were directed against females being part of the war effort? Well, um, even though you'll see things in the papers about, you know, do your bit, buy bonds and things like that. I think there was a perception, are you stepping out of your assigned role in the home and with children? The uh, letter from the Secretary of War to Mary Roberts Reinhardt, which said, well, you're the mother of several boys. Even though you're a trained nurse, we can't take you. <laughs> and Ruth Bancroft Law, a pilot who was trying to join the Army Air Corps, and they said, no way, F famous female barnstormer, first to do the loop-the-loop -loop, to fly at night and prevented from utilizing her skills to help the war effort. So you see these ingrained attitudes about what women could do, and then their responses about, okay, how do I circumvent the system, or do I find another way to serve, or do I just give up? So it really was remarkable about how some managed to circumvent these prescribed ideas about what women could do. Elizabeth Foxwell is the editor of In Their Own Words, American Women in World War I. You can hear her reading from Gertrude Tebow's colorful account of being a librarian at Walter Reed on our website, metroconnection.org. And you can see Foxwell read from her book in person this coming Tuesday night at One More Page Books and More in Arlington. We have that information on metroconnection.org, too. Our next story takes us to Baltimore. This year alone, Charm City and its surrounding suburbs have become home to nearly 1,000 refugees. That's just a fraction of the millions who have been fleeing violence in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, and elsewhere. And more could be coming soon. President Obama recently upped the number of Syrians the nation will take in this coming year from 2,000 to 10,000. Karen Turner introduces us to one man struggling to rebuild his life, thousands of miles from home. Zakaria Al-Sagir remembers the moment he found out he was coming to America. We kept checking the status for like every hour, every 30 minutes, 20 times for me, maybe another 20 times for my wife. It was like about 4 a.m. in the morning. My wife woke me up. She told me the status was changed to approved. 
So, and we are requested to send our passport to get the visa. We were very happy, extremely happy. We were like uh, laughing and happy, excited. Zakaria is Iraqi. He had lived his whole life in Baghdad until he made the decision to leave behind his friends, family, and just about everything he knew. He took his wife and kids and moved to the United States. When uh, Saddam regime was overthrown by the last war, it became very unsafe. Many people were kidnapped. Zakaria worked as a translator in Iraq. He is one of an estimated 50,000 Iraqis and Afghanis who assisted the U.S. government during the wars. This put him at risk for retaliatory violence, meaning he could apply for a special immigration visa to resettle in the States. After many months of waiting, Zakaria and his family were finally approved. We flew to BWI, the Baltimore-Washington airport. But the first couple days, I was just relieved, so I was happy and excited. After that, after a while, I started to ask and talk to family members, friends, how is it about like living in the U.S.? My case manager at that time, Sausen Sayab, she helped a lot. That case manager he's talking about is from the International Rescue Committee, a nonprofit that works to resettle refugees. Here in their East Baltimore office, the IRC is running a cultural orientation workshop for new arrivals. Ruben Chandrasekhar is the group's director. When a refugee arrives uh, in the U.S., they have to be willing to start from ground zero. Uh, They have to reinvent their whole life because everything that they knew, everything that they were, has to be put behind. They have to find work, a place to live, put their kids in school. But Chandra Saker says the nearly 10,000 refugees coming to Baltimore over the past 15 years are also helping to rebuild the city. Baltimore City had a lot of vacant homes, and in some ways a crumbling tax base. Between the year 2000 and 2010, Baltimore City actually saw a a slight increase in its population. And when you dig into the demographics of that, you see that it's immigrants and refugees who've made this their home that are making Baltimore City come back. But for refugees like Zakaria Al-Sagir, it can be hard to move on, with family and loved ones back at home and in danger. I still have family. Uh, I have my sister. Uh, she has four kids, and I also have my, my brother. How often do you speak to them, to your family there? Every day. I speak to them daily. Also, you know, try to cheer them and give them, like, bed talk about, you know, they will be here soon, and they will start their new life, and everything will be fine soon. Even with his brother and sister there, Zachariah says Iraq doesn't feel like his home anymore. The home is not like just a land, just a soil. The home is where you get respect, the home where you get your rights, the home where you get the future for your children. Uh, yes, I had great memories with the great friends, but many of my friends died, many of them got killed. These memories got defaced and got uh, mutated by what happened after 2003. So yes, I love the memories, but I don't have any passion to go there because there is no more place for, for me there. For the thousands of migrants now fleeing Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, home is a place in limbo. Ruben Chandrasekhar, with the IRC, says residents of prosperous countries should keep that in mind as we respond to the current migrant crisis. We have to ask ourselves, you know, what would we do in those circumstances? Would we get on that boat and travel the high seas 
to try to get uh, to a place of safety? And once we get there, how would we want to be treated? And this is the question that confronts the U.S. today. How are we going to respond to one of the most uh, incredibly destructive civil wars uh, and millions of people facing displacement and, and death? I'm Karen Turner. In the 1980s and 90s, another conflict in the world would send thousands of people seeking refuge in the D.C. area. El Salvador's bloody civil war displaced as many as one out of every four Salvadorans. It also inspired great, if often disturbing, works of art. Now, a Salvadoran-American artist is curating one of the most comprehensive collection of paintings from that period. As Armando Trull tells us, the work is sparking powerful emotions, not just in viewers who lived through the war, but in their children. Muriel Hasbun is showing me a striking painting in her studio. It's an incredible piece that really gives um, voice to all those victims. The canvas is about four feet by four feet. The colors are beautiful. The subject matter, anything but. You see a chaotic, um, violent scene. Um, women screaming, children um, being, and choked being choked. and By a figure that looks like he is um, a police officer or a soldier. The perpetrators have these kinds of stylized figures that look like film noir figures. Hasbun is a photographer and a professor at George Washington University's Corkin Gallery. Her family owns an extensive collection of artwork created during the Salvadoran Civil War. This painting is by Miguel Antonio Bonilla. It represents the massacres, assassinations, and atrocities that claimed almost 80,000 lives between 1980 and 1992. The majority of those deaths at the hands of Salvadoran soldiers and police. It's overwhelming because my dad uh, is from El Salvador. He came when he was like 19, escaping the war in the 80s. Kimberly Benavides is a Salvadoran American. She saw La Masacre during a recent exhibition at the Salvadoran Embassy in Washington. We don't grow up hearing these stories from our families and we don't know anything about it because we don't learn about it in school. So it's almost, um, how do you say, negar? Denying, denying that it happened, erasing our history, erasing our past, erasing the trauma that our family went through. After speaking with me, Benavides recorded her impressions as part of the Labyrinto project. Professor Hasbun is using oral history to preserve a crucial part of El Salvador's past. For me, the artworks embody the stories of individual people while they, at the same time, create a collective story. The artwork used in the Labyrinto project was collected by Hasbun's mother, Janine Janowski. She had a gallery of art in El Salvador called Galeria El Labyrinto. El Labyrinto, which means labyrinth, became a refuge where artists, musicians, and intellectuals could meet even as the war raged on the other side of the walls. Basically, it was a place where you could be at liberty to say whatever it is that you thought. Through El Labyrinto Project, another generation of Salvadorans 
can speak their truths. Again, Kimberly Benavides. I love that she's doing this, and I love that she's encouraging our own people to tell their stories, and people who, like me, who were born here, but we don't know these stories, so we have to learn and we have to investigate, and we have to pick at our parents' wounds in order to know about it. Everyone, not just Salvadorans, can examine their wounds. Juan Cortez is from Colombia, a country that has experienced its share of terrible bloodshed. Cortez says he picked Los Héroes Están Cansados, The Heroes Are Tired, by Dagoberto Nolasco. It shows a Salvadoran soldier in a beach chair with a tropical shirt and shorts. One leg is amputated. He dreams slack-jawed while ghosts and spirits fly over him. The soldier reminds me of my grandfather, says Cortez. My grandfather has a heavy conscience. I know he has many monsters inside. Violence is the theme of many pieces, but surprisingly, in the midst of a war, artists also created beautiful still-life paintings. One shows a volcano in myriad tonalities of green, framed by pale blue skies and silvery clouds. Elizabeth Rodriguez was born here of Salvadoran parents. I feel like this is just an image that will always stay with me regarding El Salvador. I just always want to continue to look at it as that beautiful place. She says the painting, Volcán de San Salvador, is a magical reminder of her visits as a young girl. I feel like it's just, it kind of shows the hope the people have always had and continue to have through all the hard times we've gone through in our country. I'm Armando True. That's Metro Connection for this week. Today, we bid a fond farewell to Tara Boyle. She was Metro Connection's managing producer for four and a half years and leaves WAMU this week to begin a new adventure. Thank you, Tara, for everything. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We list all of our music at metroconnection.org, where you can also find links to our Twitter and Facebook pages so we can stay in touch with you all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.